0: The Accutron Show. Accutron, it's not a timepiece, it's a conversation piece. With your host, Bill McCuddy, and contributors, Scott Alexander and David Graver. It's always the doing of something new, the discovering of something new, and the discovering of, of the classic, like what endures through all of these searches.
1: That voice you heard at the top of the show is Suchi Reddy. She's the founder of the New York City-based architecture firm ReadyMade. She's here to talk about design in America, its evolution, and its future. But first, me, Bill McCuddy, together with culture writer Scott Alexander and Cool hunting editor David Graver. David, what's your favorite Manhattan building? What building in New York do you walk by and go, I like that one best?
2: Oh, that's such a challenging question. You know, I actually have a note in my iPhone that lists my favorite building. Of course, like you of, do. of course, all my favorite buildings. Does it change? It does. But number one for me is generally the Chrysler building because my grandfather worked on it. He was an electrician. And it resonates a great deal. Every time I walk by and I look up, I feel something. But I'm actually a huge fan of the work of Star Architects, and Jean Nouvel's spire growing out of MoMA, the 5-3 West 5-3, is tantalizing to me. It's got an exoskeleton. You're like, why does this building have an exoskeleton? But I also look up at that, and I see more than just a building. I see a vision.
1: The Empire State Building that uh, is the home to this podcast is uh, also interesting, but to me, more interesting on the inside than the out. And we're going to talk to our guest about – about the how inside and outside the yin and yang of building works. Scott, what's your favorite building?
3: Well, I was just going to say about the Empire State Building. When I got to New York, I was like, everyone talks about the Empire State Building. And, I was, and then I saw the Chrysler Building. And I was like, what a cool building the Empire State Building is. But it was the Chrysler Building. <laughs> you know, it's so funny like, you say
1: that. Most people do that. They assume the Chrysler Building is the Empire State yeah. Building. Because it's
3: beautiful. Can My we God. move to that building? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we want to be in the cool building.
1: No, this is great. I also, uh, this is
3: the coolest building inside. It's really It's great. It's a little blocky on the outside.
1: I like the Guggenheim as far as museums go. I think that's that's pretty amazing. That's iconic. Anybody listening to this would know it. What you might not know is that next to Carnegie Hall, which I also think is great, there's a Carnegie office building that's about 90 stories tall that was designed to look like Carnegie Hall. And I think of all the big, tall buildings in Manhattan, that's the one that kind of morphed the little space next to it and really, really looks handsome.
3: And then across the street, you get the Carnegie Deli where they would build you a <laughs> giant sandwich. Well, you used to. Handsome.
1: Rest in peace, Carnegie Deli. That's gone. Uh, the stage deli around there, they're all gone. It's, it's, it's sad.
3: I love the uh, Petrosian building because I'm, I'm a sucker for complicated. So the you know I, I like complicated books I like complicated clothing I like complicated buildings so that's this thing called is called the ca- that's called all the Alwyn
1: Court and it has an right. interior in it that's like a the, an early Grand Hyatt because it's got like a giant atrium in the middle of it and my building was directly across the street from that so right. I got to look at that building we were at the and those buildings were built in kind of tandem at the same time yeah and we were in the cheap rental that got to
2: look at the expensive building across the street that's the way to go here's a very important question. What about comparing Grand Central Terminal versus Penn Station versus Port Authority from a structural well, I'm, standpoint? I'm sorry. I, I, I vomited
3: in my mouth a little bit when you said Penn Station. So,
2: Grand Central is one of the most beautiful buildings in New York City hands well, down. Well, did you know Penn Station was? Indeed. And then it, it
1: imploded or they, they tore it down. And when they built Madison Square Garden, they had to redo the station and they made
3: it all contemporary and ruined it. Indeed. But I always call uh, Grand Central my favorite room in Manhattan. Because you walk in there and there's that sense of space. You're, you're like, We're, this is all one room? You feel like you're outdoors and yet you're indoors. There's that sky mural on the top. I, I Every time I'm anywhere within two blocks of that building, I go in just to walk around for a minute. Inside. We
1: should tell people who haven't been there that you literally see constellations. So it's yeah. like the night sky. It's got, uh, I guess- Leo and uh, the Milky Way or whatever. It's got like some stars up there. And it's what's interesting is that you can see any movie from the 20s on or whenever it was built. And if it was shot in there, it looks exactly as it does today.
3: Yeah. And uh, they make a hell of a martini in the oyster bar.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We are just looking for swag on this podcast today. We're mentioning (laughs) anything we can and to try and get in there and get a sandwich or some uh, Petrosian caviar. David, from the millennial point of view, what do you want? in an interior and exterior. What's the next
2: generation of what your generation is looking for? I'm glad that that question is predicated on the fact that we all understand that design is so influential on the human psyche and that you feel different when you enter certain spaces. I think because of the bombardment of social media, a lot of millennials are actually looking for chill. We want white walls. We want minimal design. We want access to light because that will provide us the opportunity to settle our brains after like, picking up our phone and seeing 38 text messages, 14 Instagram notifications, and so on and so on.
3: There's a lot of talk about generational differences. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings. You all have actually very similar neurological wiring, And so the spaces we're in and the ways they affect us are actually the same. Even though we grew up with different levels of technology, different TV shows, different sort of cultural mores, we end up – responding to spaces incredibly similarly. We'll learn that from our guest today, Suchi Reddy. She designs things based sometimes
1: on the neurological responses to them. We're going to hear all about that. We're also going to hear that scent is another one of the senses that she likes to work with and and make a part of her interior design. And we're also going to learn, let me, before I tell you, let me ask you guys, could you live in 350 square feet, David? I lived in a
2: kitchen for (laughs) several years that's not a story for now
3: (laughs) or ever till (laughs) he escaped
2: and got the card Uh, i was Uh, in the kitchen
3: (laughs) right hiding like did you have to did you have to when they did service did you have to go in the cabinets (laughs) (laughs) do you guys watch the tiny house things on hgtv about these people
1: that Uh, get away and live in in glorified trailers could you do that
3: I can't – like in New York, it trains you to say the outside is part of my house. Indeed. Okay. Central Park is my backyard. Right, right, You know, Prospect Park is my backyard, those kinds of things. I so. also just
2: have too much stuff.
1: Well, guess what? (laughs) Our guest today is living in a very famous 350-square-foot apartment here in Manhattan. It's been written about in things like Architectural Digest, and she will tell us how she survives in 350 square feet of space. I couldn't do it. It's basically the size of the room we're in right now. Well, we'll ask her that, but I think so. I think that's challenging. I mean, as New Yorkers, we always make the jokes about everything's the size of a closet, but literally, hers is but right for Kim Kardashian. That's like half a closet,
3: or just uh, you know, somewhere in the in the suburban lands right. <laughs> where people have the expansive, the
1: walk-ins. She specializes in diversity. She's lived all around the world, and I think we're going to find out that the architectural and interior design firm that she has called Ready Made is ready made for the future. It. Consists of a lot of different people uh, from a lot of different walks
2: of life, creating for the new, the next generation. I'm very curious, guys. Do you have any furniture in your home that is meaningful to you? That's more than just a couch to sit on or a lamp for light. Something that you have for purpose. Well, I do, but I'm
1: older, and I feel like your generation, guys, that gets everything at IKEA and and. It's disposable. But, yeah, I have some furniture that my mother had, that my grandparents had. Not a lot. I think more and more, even people my age are, like, paring down to just one or two important things rather than a household of things. And remember, our parents are gone, so we inherit large, lots of furniture, and there's a
2: huge responsibility with that. The answer to the question is yes, one or two. Do you? Indeed. But I'm on the older end of millennial, so – I actually have an IKEA free home. I, I when <laughs> that's Ew. a thing. When I moved into the place that I'm in now, I decided I don't I didn't want anything IKEA and anything disposable. So I have begun to collect and we, I have designer furniture from a, a lot of mid century modern acquisitions, but also stuff this that I shocking I had me, made <laughs> stuff that I had made from like Linier Rose. I care a great deal about furniture because I do believe design impacts feeling and feeling if feeling at home.
1: You know, it's and, funny you bring up mid-century modern because I wonder what the next thing will be when that falls away. Same. It's What's being made right now that's going to be right. Considered- – Mid-century
3: modern was kind of the big thing for decade on decade on decade on decade. You're like, dudes, designers, <laughs> get on it.
2: Agreed. <laughs>
3: oh, uh, I do have one piece of furniture in my house that's uh, quite, quite special to me. It's a chair that I meditate on every day, and it's a very specific. It's a low – chair. It has no arms. It allows me to kind of cross my legs when I sit on it and I can get into the right posture. The back slopes away just right. So it's just and it's this place I go to every day at the same time of the day and I do the same thing every day and it really centers me and it's very much um a, a piece of furniture that uh, allows me to do that.
2: God, I can't unsee that now all yeah, right. Wait, so my number one, my number one is my bar cart. I have a magnificent bar cart. If you guys could see this bar cart, you would be envious. I'm envious. I think about it and I'm like, why am I not standing beside my bar cart? I wish you could. I'll show you guys. Is it deco and chrome and glass? It it is indeed. Yeah, 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 I know. And it's
1: round or it's square? It's square. Uh Uh-huh. We had the round one. Apparently, they,
3: apparently it came both ways. Love a bar card.
1: So your special chair, Scott, <laughs> was that something you inherited or something you bought yourself? Uh, something
3: I bought. I found it uh, in an antique store in Brooklyn.
1: So creating your own icons or your own collectibles is one thing we'll ask her. Also, uh, what does she think of what's going to happen to design and what are her favorite buildings in Manhattan and around the world? That's all coming up when Suchi Reddy joins us right after this on the Accutron Show.
0: The world runs on Accutron time. Accutron watches since 1960 from New York City to around the world.
1: Stucci, welcome to the Accutron Show. Let me begin by asking, do you remember as a child going into the first building and seeing either the first interior or exterior and going, that's what I want to do, I want to design?
0: Wow. That's a great question to start with. But um, I actually do remember a very, very distinct feeling from when I was about 10 years old and I was in my house and I felt that it, it sort of dawned on me like this epiphany. I've had these moments in my life where I have this epiphany kind of fall on my head. And I it literally felt like that when I knew that my house made me different than my friends. And
1: because it was in some way? or Just
0: because of the way that it acted on me. You know, I lived in a house that was open to the outside on four sides and it had an opening in the middle and I just knew that from the way in which that house flowed to the way in which my friends' houses flowed I knew that the house was a protagonist in my life and you that know, wasn't made in, me a thing
1: that wasn't in Brooklyn based no. on that description we are talking about where
0: <laughs> we are talking about uh, Chennai India which used to be called Madras and uh, I grew up there until I was 18 and um, in a wonderful house that was built actually by a friend of my father's who taught himself architecture and who, who wasn't schooled or trained or anything but had a That's beautiful. That's a thing
1: self taught architecture? Yes,
0: apparently. In
1: India. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> that could go terribly wrong.
0: It could. And in our case, very luckily, it didn't. So he was a wonderful, wonderful architect. and So he had kind of
3: a natural eye for this kind of flow or this?
0: He did. He was very influenced by Japanese architecture. And so our house had this very kind of Japanese sense, which I didn't know until about, you know, two or three decades later. But,
2: uh-huh. you know, I absorbed it. What about materiality?
0: Oh, materiality. Well, this is where, you know, I, I practice both as an architect, an artist, an interior designer, and my mother, who also didn't go to school, but spoke seven languages, um, did all of the materials in the interiors of our house. And I remember noticing things like a floor that she made up out of terrazzo, and she had never been to Italy. But when I finally went to Venice, I was like, how did my mother know that this is what you could do with like leftover
2: bits of terrazzo, you know? Mm-hmm. We had very interesting materials in that. So, you are incredibly well traveled. I know that having traveled with you. And your professional journey sort of went from India to Miami to Oregon to Wisconsin to Manhattan. What did you pick up from so much movement? What do you gain from the world, from traveling and seeing?
0: Well, for one thing, I've really grown to love this aspect of having a liminal perspective. I think what it does is puts me on a threshold. And I can always have a 360 view of what's happening around the world in all these different places. And I don't necessarily have to belong to all of them but I can draw from all of them. And that's been absolutely amazing. But I will say, you know, this is an amazing journey about being an immigrant. And you come to the States, most people come to places like New York, and I didn't, I arrived in Alabama, and, <laughs> which was quite a shock, you know, for a young girl from India. And then I traveled around the country to lots of different places until I ended up here. And I learned that America is not as homogenous as it looks or people think it is. There was this kind of regionalism, which now I think is even more in everyone's faces, but it was a really interesting journey to discover that.
1: I can't let Alabama go by without asking what the year was that and what, were you aware of racism in in the South and and discrimination?
0: You know, it was 1985. I came to Birmingham, Alabama because I got married at the age of 18, because I decided I was, you know, this was a smart thing to do. And uh, that's the only reason I came to this country. And I had no idea what racism was. I come from a country that we know very well what prejudice is. We don't really practice racism to this degree. And I remember my first class in college when I learned that segregation ended in the 60s. I think my jaw hit the ground. I was like, what? I was, I was alive when that happened? Like, how did this, you know... Um, So it's been a bit of a shock. And then I went to school in Detroit and really there was the first time I had another epiphany similar to the one where I knew that my house was actually acting on me when I had an internship in uh, an all-white male firm and I wasn't getting anything interesting to do and the guys around me were and I didn't know, you know, why that would be. I was quite sort of surprised until it dawned on me that that's what was going on. And I had no idea.
2: How do you break out of something like that? How
0: <laughs> well with determination? Moved to Wisconsin, so <laughs> we say. Well, you moved to Wisconsin. You know where they're where they're nice, but you know they the the exotic is also a wall that uh, you can you can come up against. Um, but no, you you just work with it. You work with it, and you learn from it, and you say, you know, that's not the thing that defines me. What defines me is really still really. I I will say that I have this kind of from all of this travel a deep love for this place. And I think it allows people to be who they are. And I think you just have to remember that and keep going.
1: This place being New York.
0: This place being New York at the moment, yes. Do you feel like
3: that friction you hit at those various points, sometimes that is what creates the heat, creates the fire for people in their in their ambition. Is that true for you?
0: I don't think so for me. For me, it just became another thing that I have to face because the other thing is architecture is a very male-dominated practice. Right. So it's not the only thing I'm dealing with. It's you funny know, you say um, that
1: because my mother was an interior designer who yeah. believed that architects designed from the outside in and she always said as an interior designer I wish I could design the outside of the house because I would do it from the inside out. Absolutely. So which statement is true and or how do you how do you work with
0: both ideas? Well, I think I work pretty much like your mother would have wanted to work. You know, I really do work from the inside. And in fact, the mantra of my practice is this this idea that form follows feeling. Like I, from that moment when I knew that my house actually made me feel and become a certain way, I always wanted to design from the inside out. And so, and that's a fine line. You know, you you still have to make the outside beautiful and you still have to make it interesting. So it's a very complex kind of conversation between the inside and the outside so that you can bring them together.
3: I'm really curious. At this point, everyone's spending so much time inside their houses. Designing from the inside to the outside sounds very appealing to me. A lot of people are doing stuff for themselves. Do you have any ideas for what people can do in their own spaces to sort of own them or take control of them?
0: You know, it's a question I've been asked a lot, and it's uh, since the pandemic started. And I really think the first thing you have to do is carve out a space for yourself, which I think is quite difficult for most people. And it's actually a wonderful thing that people are paying attention both to their bodies and to their homes and to all of these things that that we need to as humans that perhaps we've been too busy to do. Um, And some of the simple tricks are, you know, even if you can't change anything about your space, you could use a fragrance that actually Mm. changes. And it's a very easy thing to do. Um, Scent is another love of mine. And so, you know, it's something that I, I think about a lot. Uh, plants are a thing that really help people in terms of defining space, in terms of uh, buffeting sound, in terms of creating comfort. You know, so these kinds of things are—they're very simple and easy to do for pretty much everybody.
2: You're actually living that yourself. Your apartment is rather well known. It's been written up because of what you've done with its size.
0: True. I I'm a micro apartment liver. <laughs> I oh, really? Live Three hundred and seventy-five square feet. And uh, I practiced living as large as I can in that space, which includes, in the days when I could, having dinner parties for 10 people. (laughs) And, you know, a a big stand-up cocktail party for 40 people. And we could do it. And we had a great time. To be in that
2: space, I felt so much room. I felt, I like, I... Gathered who you were as a person, but also there was room for me to breathe and to interact with this space and with others, which was baffling to me as someone who can't put up a bookshelf.
0: Well, thank you. It's it's you know it's that it's that it's that small thing called proportion, which is so important to all kinds of design, you know, be it um, watches or be it houses, um, that it's so important to get it right because it makes it feel. Much bigger than it is.
1: So the room we're recording in right now is about the size of your apartment?
0: Yep, that's true.
1: We could have 10 people for dinner here.
0: We could.
2: (laughs) I want to play off this idea of the way space impacts sensation and feeling because I was able to attend your exhibit um, in Milan during Milan Design Week with Google and neuroscientists from Johns Hopkins about sensory healing. And I walked through spaces that you helped manifest and you changed my mood, and you changed the way I was feeling. Can you touch upon this concept of like neuroaesthetics and neuroaesthetic design? Because that's that's massive.
0: Oh, thank you. It's um, it's really been a, a huge kind of interest of mine to meld the arts and the sciences. And I've, I've always been a bit of a geek. No you know, no shame in confessing that here, I don't think. Um, But I, you know, the minute I found that neuroscience and architecture could be put together, I really started getting interested in sort of figuring out who's working in this field and how they're working. And I came across this field called neuroaesthetics that looks at um, how spaces and aesthetic experiences can affect our brains and our bodies. And the installation that you're talking about was one where I was charged with designing three different rooms to create three different spaces that then we could monitor people's bodily metrics and reflect back to them the fact that each space was acting on them differently and that there was a space where they felt more at ease and perhaps one where they didn't, right? or perhaps it was a surprising one. where I told you they, blue
1: wouldn't work in this exactly, room. Exactly. And it literally or, can reveal things like that?
0: It, well, no. Well, yes, if you wanted to read it that way. Uh-huh. But what it can reveal to you is the fact that your body is more at rest When you're surrounded by these things, you know, so it just gives you a guideline to how to manage your life. But A, the the biggest thing about it was to just to show people that their environments matter.
1: So you can actually create happier people.
0: I can try to do that, yeah.
1: And are, are a lot of people doing this, or is this sort of a niche you've carved for yourself?
0: It's sort of a new field. It started about 15 years ago, and it uh, there's scientists involved, there's architects and artists involved, and we're all trying to come to the middle to speak the same language. So different experiments get carried out, whether it's on the artistic side or on the scientific side. And eventually I'm hoping that there will be a whole body of knowledge that people will be able to use.
1: And from the scented side, to back up for a second, because that was fascinating what you David was asking you about, is do you design different scents for different environments? Do you say you'll be a woodsy and you'll be a, a linen and you'll be a, well, a floral? or
0: uh, for that project, actually – There was a professional who was doing that. I see. So, because I stuck to the profession that I know well, which is architecture. And um, we had, I think it was Mandy Aftel from San Francisco who designed the fragrances for the different rooms. But we um, came together on the principles for the elements that we might want to have in the different rooms. Great. And then she designed to them and I designed to
2: them. I want to jump countries, but carry that same thought in that I stood in your pavilion in Times Square which is an incredibly hectic and, at that time, chaotic place filled with so many people. And I gathered from your work that you were trying to demonstrate inclusivity and togetherness through chaos. Can you talk to me? (laughs) Because that's what we do on this podcast. (laughs) Excellent. Can you talk to me about the X or X and and what it meant to have that in the center of Times Square?
0: So X was a sculpture space that was commissioned um, that actually we won uh, uh, through a competition. And um, the basis of that work was a quote um, that's by Dr. Cornel West that said justice, and I might paraphrase slightly, but it says justice is the expression of love in society and tenderness is its expression in private. And how would you make this a physical you know, manifestation of that? And I decided that I had to create an X because... X reflects the crossroads that Times Square is. It reflects its triple X history. It, huh, it needed right. to yeah. actually, X was the mark of love and a kiss for, for since I, I think I found out since the 16th century, which was really interesting. And I realized in playing with these planes that if I inserted a, an ellipse in the middle of the X, it actually revealed this kind of heart-shaped space. And so people could look up into this heart and they read the words into, into difference, add equality, find love. And I created a platform on which the more people stepped on it, the brighter the whole thing glowed. So we could look and and sense the power of love and community and the idea of justice and how we can actually come together to do that. Wow.
3: So (laughs) modestly conceptual.
0: I'm an architect. We're not (laughs) modest.
1: (laughs) I mean, to be frank, that sounds like something anybody would have come up with. I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not surprised you won. That's amazing. I didn't see that, and I'm I'm uh, I'm jealous of David for once. Well, um
0: we're hoping it will find a permanent home somewhere, so I'll let you know.
1: Oh, cool. Uh, we talk about watches and design and the way the 60s influenced today, and I just have to ask, did you have a first watch? Do you remember what it was?
0: I do. Uh, I had a Seiko. I remember ah. it very clearly. Um, it was one of my prized possessions in India because was, this was a big deal to be given a watch, you know. And even now, a watch is a very special thing among Indians to give to people. So when you get married, people give you watches. And, you know, um, it was very beautiful. It was very slim. It was very delicate. I have a kind of a narrow wrist. And so it sat quite quite beautifully on my wrist. And I, I loved it.
1: Was it digital or analog? Oh, or it was you? analog. It was.
0: Yeah, ah. it was an analog watch. And I where is that
1: watch
3: right now?
0: That watch is somewhere in my brother's house in <laughs> India.
3: Do you know what's I behind think. that tradition of of giving timepieces in
0: India? I don't. I think it's a question of giving people something you value, and mm-hmm. in those days, uh, certainly, I mean, we had, I think, we had Citizen and Psycho, but we didn't really have many other kinds. And so, to give people something that was that precious and well made, because the watch had to be well made, right? You know, in order to work and to function. So, to give someone that was really a token of your Esteem, respect, love. It
3: feels almost. It feels in some way similar to you know you're giving someone something that will endure. It feels like something that is consonant with what architects do. You're creating things that endure. Absolutely. Um, nice segue. These <laughs> these
0: uh,
3: these heirloom type items. I feel like people they anchor people in their lives. Is there anything you think people can do to kind of create their own heirlooms in their in their lives in this time where they might have a little more time on their hands?
0: Well, you know, I think. Absolutely. And I think that's a great idea. I think we should really give that to people as advice. Like when they say, like, you know, it was really interesting. At the beginning of the pandemic, I did a a webinar about neuroaesthetics and a lot of people were dialing in and it was so sad and so interesting. There were some people who were really suffering from depression and being alone was very difficult. And they were asking, what could we do? I wish I'd thought of this. This would have been such a great thing to do. The best thing I could say was like, do something creative, like make something, make anything. You know, because making is such an optimistic act in and of itself that the optimism of creating things, us as designers know this, you know, it keeps us going, whether we design watches, buildings, clothing, whatever it is. You know, it's always the doing of something new, the discovering of something new and the discovering of, of the classic, like what endures through all of these searches would be really important. I think it would be a great idea. I don't and know what people could make, though.
1: How's end. how's business during the pandemic? Because are people sitting at home and realizing they want to change their space?
0: Uh, I think there's a little bit of that going on. And there's a little bit... Of... We didn't know
1: we'd be stuck in this room this long. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> can we
0: can we make it better? Yeah, definitely. There, there's a lot of that going on. Um, it's a very difficult landscape to really understand at the moment because there's enough people kind of leaving the city, enough people coming back to the city enough new people coming into the city, so it's really hard to know. The one thing across the board I will say is that I think people are being conservative about their spending because no one knows what the future holds. Um, But aside from that, there's plenty to do.
1: And speaking of what the future holds, what will design look like 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now?
0: Well, I think design is going to be more and more influenced by technology, but I'm really hoping that design will be influenced by technology from the point of view of well-being. And that's what I really am hoping that this pandemic is going to teach us all, that it's not just my well-being that rules the world, it's your well-being that rules my world. And therefore, I have to look out for your well-being. And so I'm hoping it's things like data mining, like artificial intelligence, all of these things that can come together to really make us design a better world and a better planet for everyone else, because that means we're doing it for ourselves.
2: This is sort of a a two-pronged question. Do you have favorite buildings from like New York City's heritage, architectural heritage? And in this onslaught of new buildings that are changing the skyline, is there something that you think is notable?
0: I had to take a breath there for a (laughs) minute, you know, because there's so much to think through. Um, But I I would say the Whitney, the old Whitney, the Breuer Building, is my favorite building in New York City. I I would have to say, um, yeah, people think it's brutalist. I don't. Um, I think it's an incredible example of architecture, an incredible example of technology and texture, everything that I love. Um, so I'm very happy with that building. And if you ask me what's my favorite building, I would have to tell you that it's a salt shed on the West Side Highway that's carved <laughs> wow. into almost a solid object. Um, and I love that building as well. So there is actually, if you look at them both, I'm laughing at myself now when I think about it because they both look very similar. Um, or it could be construed to look similar, but um, yes. Is there a simplicity
3: there that appeals to you? Or? Yeah,
0: I think it is my uh, uh, Japanese-infused Indian roots um, oh. that, that really bring me down to the simplicity and the shape. Because I also think the beauty of New York is that it's a fabric. You look at a single building, and it may not be perfect, but you look at put it put it next to ten others, and it becomes this beautiful animated fabric. And very few cities have that because there's either over-regulation or under-regulation or just too many gaps in between and bad zoning, you know. And luckily, because of our geography and the type of rock that our island is built on, um, we happen to have the opposite. And Except that really
1: gentrification difference. has torn down a lot of, let's say, tenements or sp- shorter, smaller buildings in in Frank uh, Frank Geary, for example, building gets shot up in that space. But you're saying no matter what, the fabric is interesting.
0: I think so. And I think it's actually a, a, a vital sign of the life of New York City. And, you know, the one thing I do worry about now is uh, because the city is so much about change and it is so much about flow you know, stopping the flow of immigrants and stopping the flow of all of the things that are the heartbeat of the city. I wonder what that's going to do.
2: Um, where would you say we are? This is another a, a rather challenging, big question with regard to parity for women in architecture.
0: Wow. There, we are not anywhere good. I will say that. Um, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I will say I think it's something less than like 2%. Um, and certainly for women of color or black architects, the numbers are even smaller. And, um, if anybody's listening, uh, it's really a question of opportunity. You know, make sure that you give the opportunity to the people who haven't had it.
1: Do you have all women working for you? or all? <laughs> I
0: have a lot of women working for me, yes. And we do happen to have a very, very uh, international office and a very mixed office. And I didn't even realize that that's what I had. People would, like, vendors would come through the office and they'd stop by my door and they'd be like, gee, your office is so... Great and so interesting and so mixed. And I'd be I'd be like, what? That's that's something to talk about. I hired
3: the talented people.
0: Yeah. I wasn't looking at anybody's color of skin. You know, I was just looking at who had the talent and who filled the spot the best. But somehow we've always had a really interesting mix of people.
1: Well, you've spent your life around the world and you've brought all of them back to New York.
2: I and- would
0: I would actually love that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> One more for you. And we touched upon form follows feeling. What are you seeking to do with your practice? What is your goal at the end of the day?
0: My goal at the end of the day, let's say the end of the day comes 20 years from now, is to have built at least five buildings that I absolutely love, um, that say something that will be classics, that will go on uh, to represent something that's really important to know and understand about architecture, not just from now, but always. Um, As an artist, I want to create at least three or four more sculptures that move people That caused them to think about wonder and the beauty of life, because I think that's the only thing that keeps me going, is focusing on those two things. And, um, yeah, that's it. Small dreams.
3: That's it. Yeah, five buildings. Five classics.
1: We can only hope that the people living in those five buildings love them even more than you do. Yeah. Uh, I hope so. We have loved having you. So thanks for joining us, Suchi, on this edition of The Accutron Show. Thank you so much, guys. On behalf of Cool Hunting's David Graver and Bon Vivant Scott Alexander, I'm Bill McCuddy for The Accutron Show. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to The Accutron Show. To hear all our shows, visit accutronwatch.com. For upcoming guests as well as behind-the-scenes action, follow us on Instagram at accutronwatch. From the 29th floor of the Empire State Building. Until next time, Accutron time. Set your tuning forks.